0: This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis.
1: And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam.
0: Hi, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about SI joint assessment, dysfunction, and treatment. Um, So I'm going to dive right in a little bit with talking about SI joint and pelvic pain, the type of patients we typically see who have this. So um, a general patient profile is usually 25 to 45 years old, and it's more common that we see um, SI joint and pelvic pain in females, often females who've been pre- who are pregnant or have been pregnant. Um, so one thing that I think it's really important to know, and this is a little bit of my own personal soapbox, is this is a place where we really need to be screening, especially as orthopedic clinicians, for referrals to pelvic floor physical therapists, Um, I think it's often missed. um, I mean, really with a lot of our patients, but particularly our pregnant and postpartum patients. And when I say postpartum, I mean, postpartum is for life. So any of your patients who've had, um, had babies in the past, we need to be screening for, you know, incontinence and explaining to them what that means, because I can't tell you, um, and Amanda, you, you know, feel free to chime in on this at any time. But in all of my low back and SI patients, I always ask about incontinence and I define that for people because sometimes they think if you've had a baby, if you jump or if you cough, sometimes you might pee a little and that's just normal. And it's not. And I think that we, um, we really need to be the ones who are having this conversation. Like, Hey, you know, there is, there are therapists who specifically treat that or pelvic organ prolapse, you know, ask about these things because they can often be involved with the musculoskeletal pain they're having. And if you can refer them to a pelvic floor therapist for a few sessions and get some of that resolved, it can go a long way in treating them for their back pain and their SI joint pain. Um, and I also think that just in general, in the U S we do a really poor job of managing new mothers. Um, and we just, it's a really quick screen after you see the OB and they clear you and, um, you know, we really need to be referring these patients and educating them on where pelvic floor physical therapists can come in, in their postpartum care. Um, and, and, you know, I, I say that because that's the most common, but we should also be screening our male patients for pelvic floor dysfunction as well. So, I mean, I don't know if you yeah. have any no comments on that.
1: I, I would definitely agree. You know, I think it's an area that's missed a lot. I think it's an area that patients don't often bring up because they don't make the association between the pain that they're having somewhere in their pelvic girdle with their incontinence or with some of their other pain or dysfunction. So they're not going to bring it up if you don't bring it up. So I think it's like Alexa said, it's an area we shouldn't miss. Um, You know, I think it's also an area that a little bit of treatment, if you can help them get them referred to the right provider, it's an area that when treated properly can make a huge difference in someone's life. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if someone's having incontinence issues along with pelvic pain and back pain, and you can help get them on the track to get that all addressed, that's life-changing for them. You know, that's not dealing with a small ache here or there.
0: Right. Absolutely. So um, just something to be aware of in this, this population specifically. So um, you know, common injury mechanisms in the SI joint include activities that involve um, extreme loading of one leg or activities with torsional movements. Uh, so again, these are the most common types of patients we see with SI joint pain, but As we go through this whole episode and and even some of, you know, the last episode where we talked about biomechanics, there's just so, so much that we don't know. Um, So, you know, we're just presenting what the research is currently showing, but there's still a lot of gray area when it comes to SI joint pain. There's a wide variety in reported SI joint pathology. There are some investigators that feel that SI joint pathology is irrelevant, while others have found SI joint pathology to be the cause in 13% among patients complaining of low back pain. A study of 202 patients with proven disc herniations showed 72.3% of them had SI joint pathology when using a battery of clinical tests, indicating that we should be aware that many of our patients with disc herniations likely have SI joint pathology as well. To make this even more confusing, a study of 186 individuals with leg pain found that 41% of those patient symptoms were of SI joint origin, indicating that SI joint pain can mimic sciatica. So that's something you need to be aware of in your screening as well. So as we begin to discuss assessment and treatment of these patients, you'll see that we need to use a cluster of tests to determine if the SI joint is, is involved, and if so, how we should approach our treatment plan. So we're gonna, talk with, we're gonna start talking about assessment, and our assessment of the SI joint should include the following six parameters, and these are outlined really well in the current concept, concepts book. So these six parameters are provocation testing, pain location, palpation, strength testing, mobility testing, and quadrant length screening. We're going to start with talking about provocation tests, and there's really no clear reference or gold standard to identify whether the source of low back pain derives from the SI joint by using injections, physical examination, or a combination. The literature does attempt to address this, but the challenges. The challenge involves controlling for complex variables and various forms of bias. So on pages 22 through 25 of the current concepts monograph, there's a table that describes uh, the following things, SI joint clinical prediction rules, SI joint provocation tests, hip screening, lumbar screening, fracture screening of the pelvic girdle and hip and neural tension testing. These are all important to know and understand when we, we are assessing our low back, pelvic, and hip patients. And I think this chart in particular just does a really good job of kind of breaking those down, describing exactly what they are and how to perform them. Um, so I think it's a really good reference to, to take a look at. The current concepts monograph also discusses many of the studies that have been done on provocation tests of the SI joint. I'd rec- I would recommend reading through the details to better understand the limitations of these tests, but I'm going to summarize a little bit of what they found. So overall, there's no single pain provocation test that has been shown to be a good predictor of SI joint pain. This is because these provocation tests are unable to isolate forces to the SI joint only, especially because many of the tests need to be applied with some vigor. So therefore, cluster testing, clustering of these tests can lead to a much more accurate diagnosis. Um, so we're looking at a couple of different clinical prediction rules. Um, and again, you're going to see these in that chart, um, in the current concepts, which is a nice place to reference, but Lastlet et al. in 2003 found a 0.91 sensitivity and 0.87 specificity when three or more of the following five tests were found to be positive. The thigh thrust, sacral thrust, gapping, compression, and Gainslin and Gainslin is being in this incident instance is being performed once on each side Um, excluding patients who had centralized or peripheralized symptoms with lumbar active range of motion increased the positive likelihood ratio and the false positive rate in 2005 they completed another study that showed that 16 patients who responded to an si joint injection all had at least one positive provocation test in their cluster therefore they concluded that if all of the items in the cluster are negative that painful SI joint pathology can be ruled out. Um, Vanderwerf et al is in 2006, it's another um, clinical prediction rule, found 0.85 sensitivity and 0.79 specificity of SI pain when three or more of the five tests were positive. And these tests very, very similar to LASLIT. It's um, the distraction test or gapping, compression test, thigh thrust, Faber, so the Patrick sign test, um, and Gainsland test. So there's another test that they mentioned in the current s- concepts. It's the Haber test, which is hip abduction and external rotation. And they reference a 2015 study, um, which showed that the Haber test reproduced familiar pain in SI joint positive patients with low back pain compared to SI joint negative patients with low back pain. They demonstrate a 67 to 78% level of sensitivity and 71 to 72% specificity for identifying SI joint positive patients. Uh, they also note that Haver increments of greater than or equal to 30 degrees have the highest sensitivity, which is 83 to 100%, and specificity 52 to 64%. So that might be a study that um, would be helpful in looking up as well, if you want a little inf- more information on the Haver test. So the next thing we're going to talk about is pain location. And this is also highly variable between individuals. Current Concepts discusses a few different studies, but overall we really still have more questions than answers about pain location in individuals with SI joint pain. But as I mentioned in the last episode, the SI joints innervation is really not fully understood and is complex. And it may also vary between person to person. Um, Also, adjacent structures such as the sympathetic trunk anterior to the anterior SI joint are not fully appreciated as to its contributions to SI joint pain. Some of the studies discussed have shown pain into the low back, upper and lower buttock, lateral thigh, lower leg, and around the PSIS, which is also known as Fortin area because of the Fortin finger test, Um, and that's when a patient points when you ask them where their pain is and they point very closely to the PSIS. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's something I see with patients quite a bit where they'll point to that region.
1: Yeah. The second they start naming their pain and they'll usually take their thumb and stick it right Mm -hmm. there. They'll say it hurts right here. Um, Then I'm like, "Eh." well, you know, kind of red flags going off for SI screening.
0: Yes. So that's known as the Fortin finger test. Um, So pain referral patterns are likely related to the particular region of the SI joint that's involved which leads to variable pain patterns and unclear validity of using pain as a diagnostic tool and treatment guide. Many studies use injections as a way to diagnose the painful area of the SI joint, but obviously this method, it's invasive, it's expensive, and it's impractical for the large majority of practitioners who are screening for SI joint pain. Um, centrally mediated pelvic girdle pain is not yet fully understood and can found studies that rely on peripheral tissue provocation paired with a patient's subjective responses. It's always a challenge to determine a diagnosis when relying on a patient's subjective response. Um, We need to consider that patients have variable tolerances to pain and also present with different illness behaviors. So just like anything else, when we're relying a lot on, you know, subjective reports, it just makes things a little more difficult. Um, And at the end of the day, you know, what we really need to look at is how much does it really matter? An understanding of the pain generating tissue is helpful during the evaluation However, we should ultimately be focused on an evaluation and treatment paradigm that determines why the patient has come to see us and use these pain patterns as a tool for monitoring treatment response more so than tissue-based diagnosis. So all that to say, don't get too, too hung up if you're not 100% sure exactly what area um, of the SI joint is causing the pain. With palpation, again, as we've mentioned previously, there's a lot of variability in bony landmarks between individuals, um, and also from one side to another in the same individual. So this means as clinicians, we should be cautious in using bony landmarks to identify positional findings with diagnostic conclusions. Again, you can use these findings to cluster with other findings, but it should never be your only diagnostic tool. Um, however, there are some studies that have shown that palpation of ligaments baby be benef- may be helpful in assessing SI-generated symptoms. So palpating around the ligaments could give you an idea of if there's SI joint involvement. And um, in, gen- in general, the takeaway, we should palpate these structures but we need to use our palpation findings, again, clustering along with other findings from our examination. The next area we're gonna talk about is strength testing. Um, so that can also be a helpful tool in the diagnosis of SI joint pathology. The active straight leg raise test is a valid and useful tool in assessing SI joint or pubic joint hypermobility or lack of stability. And there's more um, discussion on the active straight leg raise test on page 28 of the current concepts. Um, It is noted that pain can affect the results of the active straight leg raise test. So again, it should be clustered with other findings. Hip adduction weakness, so adduction weakness, may also indicate SI joint pathology. Uh, Note that studies were were done on individuals with posterior pelvic pain since pregnancy. However, it is likely that clinicians can use this test on all patients. It's also important to know that it appears to be more of a motor control problem than true hip adductor weakness. Um, You'll also often see in these patients pain with hip abduction manual muscle test, um, either tested in supine with the hip extended and abducted to 30 degrees or in side-lying. Um, And this test has good or excellent specificity for ruling in SI joint pathology if the patient has other clinical signs of SI joint pathology. So again, not a standalone, um, but it's another piece to that puzzle. Another thing to consider is a 2007 study performed on pregnant women with confirmed pelvic girdle pain showed functional loading tests, including squatting, sit to stand, um, an eight inch lateral step up and lunging had very high specificity for confirming pelvic girdle pain compared to some of the commonly used provocation tests that we've previously discussed. So again, I mean, I think, you know, obviously this test was done on pregnant um, subjects, but I think it could probably be applied to anyone who may be experiencing potentially um, SI joint pathology. So using those um, functional loading tests can also be beneficial in your cluster of findings. The next thing is mobility testing. So, um, As we know, the motion at the SI joint is so small that the tests we have available cannot accurately measure range of motion of the SI joint in various planes. However, we can't completely throw out motion testing because movement at the SI joint is necessary for us to move in all three planes of motion. Those small movements allow us to create larger movement patterns. So we need to look at gross overall movement. A lack of relatively small SI joint motions can result in relatively large substitutions that can be assessed in the clinic. Um, So there's some examples in the current concepts of these kind of gross overall movements to look at. Um, One of the examples on pages 29 to 30, they discuss using the Gillette test and observing how the pelvis moves. So does it rotate freely or does it hike? So we're not necessarily... And, you know, this is the test where we're kind of that stork test where you're sitting on one leg and and flexing the hip and the knee up towards your chest. We're not going to be able to get a, you know, a very um, accurate measurement of what the range of motion is there. But you can look at that quality of movement. Is it rotating or are they hiking their their pelvis in order to get their hip up? Mm -hmm. Um, And the last thing is they know. Um, quadrant length screening. So leg, we're looking at leg length asymmetry here and asymmetric loading that can cause low back pain and pelvic girdle pain. So it's important to assess if your patient has a scoliotic curve or if they have a true leg length discrepancy to determine how to treat the patient. Um, and that's really, they go into a little bit more information in the current concepts about using a heel lift for these patients. Um mm-hmm you know, it may or may not be beneficial in those who have scoliosis, but it can definitely alleviate some of the pain if your patient has a true leg length discrepancy. So that's something to consider, um, you know, making sure that you're taking a look at the leg length on each side. Do you have anything you want to add to any of those different types of tests for the assessment?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, you know, Lee did a nice job just summarizing cluster testing and how important that is. So that's definitely the biggest take home.
0: Yes. Cluster, cluster, cluster the tests. Um, all right. Medical screening. I'm not really going to get into this. You know, Amanda's done a great job in the low back episodes and also the season one fun with flags episode on discussing the red and yellow flags. Um, so I would recommend that you go back and take a look at that um, or listen to those. I'm not going to dive further for this episode. Um, it's, it's a lot of the same general information on things that you should be screening for um, in terms of medical screening. And then differential diagnosis. So like as I've been mentioning all along, it's really often difficult to differentiate between hip, SI joint, and low back diagnoses in these patients. Um, It's important to use that cluster of tests to guide your diagnosis and ultimately treat based on what you find and what the patient responds to rather than treating the diagnosis. Um, There's charts in the current concepts on pages 22 through 25, as well as 35 to 38, um, there's some more information there on differential diagnosis in this re- region, as well as they um, provide some guidance on organizing your examination. So if you feel like um, you need a little more help and guidance on how to organize these tests, that's a really good reference to look at. Um, so I'm going to get a little bit more into treatment of these patients now. So you know, with all as with all low back patients. It's important that we address these patients early and try to avoid the progression to this becoming a chronic back pain um, problem. Treatment should be individualized based on your clinical findings, but should include education, self-efficacy, and reassurance. Reducing fear is really important in these patients. We need to determine if these patients are hypermobile or hypomobile when determining our treatment strategies. So As we mentioned before, with the hypermobile patients, you're going to see a positive active straight leg raise test. With hypomobile patients, you're going to see positive three out of five on the Lassitz cluster and a negative active straight leg raise. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about manipulation and mobilization. They've been shown to be helpful in patients with low back and SI joint pain that present with hypomobility. And they may present with a variety of diagnoses. Um, Oftentimes, you know, you might... Feel like these patients have an anterior-posterior rotation, upslip, inflare, outflare, or sacral to- torsion. But my man and I were talking about this a little, a little bit earlier. And there's definitely a lot of controversy around whether these happen, and if we can actually diagnose these dysfunctions due to the low re- reliability of SI joint provocation tests and palpation. Um, I think, you know, you'll see a. A lot um in in research now where we're not even really sure does a true upslip happen or you know i mean i know you mentioned before the episode a lot of times it's like if somebody steps off a curb or something then you might see like a true upslip but oftentimes we're not even really sure these things happen right
1: true yeah i think you know especially upslips the only ones i've ever truly seen are usually related to some kind of traumatic mechanism of injury step in a hole Mm -hmm. step off a curb hard usually some kind of force through the bottom of a fall sometimes
0: can do it. Right. So, and, and I think unfortunately, and again, this is just sort of a clinical like soapbox thing. I don't, how many patients have we all had come in that have said, well, my, my, my pelvis is out or my hip is out. It's like you didn't dislocate anything. And I think it, it goes back to like, it creates a sort of fear thing. Like, well, I need somebody to put my pelvis back in place, which sounds terrible. Right. I mean, that, that sounds terrible to me. Um, so I think we need to be really careful with our, how we describe this to patients. Um, even if we're, you know, feel like maybe there is some sort of, you know, rotation or something going on, um, I don't know. There's just a lot of controversy around all of this. So I think that's just something to consider. And I think we need to be really careful with our words. I would say one thing I usually Uh. do
1: in the clinic in terms of that is I agree with you, Alexis. I think sometimes these patients have been passed around a little bit. And so they come in with these Mm -hmm. like terrible sounding diagnoses that someone has told them. um, And they do perceive it as some kind of dislocation. You know, their perception of their body positioning is that everything has to be perfect and normal. And we all know that's not true. I use the word asymmetries a lot. You know, you have a little bit of asymmetry, mm-hmm. but it's still normal. You know, asymmetries are normal. Yeah. Sometimes asymmetries are symptomatic. Sometimes they're not. Um, so right. that's definitely the route right. I would encourage you to go.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, and I'll often t- you know, have that conversation too about like, hypomobility, like, well, things might just not be like moving freely. So let's try these things and see if you feel better. And, you know, and just explaining too, like, it's really hard to feel these things, because we're all different side to side. So um, I think providing that education is super, super important. Um, But anyway, luckily, we don't really need a specific diagnosis to successfully treat these patients. Um, There's been studies that have shown we can Successfully treat these patients by using local muscles and joints to normalize function, all planes using contract relaxed techniques. And on pages 39 through 41 of the current concepts, they show some different, you know, what they refer to as shotgun techniques for treating SI pain. Um, And clinically, this is pretty much what I do with my patients and I make sure they they have um, the pictures and what they're describing are where the clinician is kind of manually, providing resistance to those patients for those isometric contractions. I mean, I don't know what you teach your patients. I use like the ball and the belt, um, home kind of shotgun technique where they're using like hip abduction and adduction, um, or I'll have them do like a flexion extension, um, that they can do on themselves so that they're able. And I've had a ton of positive feedback from patients. It seems to to really get things moving and make them feel yeah, better. Yeah, I,
1: I tend to go, fall on those pretty classic ones also. hmm Yeah.
0: So after improving the overall mobility of the SI joint, it's often appropriate to then initiate a stabilization program. In patients who are hypermobile to begin with, you know, obviously we're not going to be doing these, those mobilization techniques we just talked about. You're going to want to go straight to a stabilization program. Um, and oftentimes due to pain in the low back and SI joint, patients will present with abnormal tone. So on page 42 of the current concepts, they lay out a plan for this stabilization program. Um, I would definitely encourage you to read through it, but there's a few key things that I wanna point out. Um, so the first thing is making sure that patients master one phase before moving to the next, um, and making sure they know how to both contract and relax muscles, as well as grade contractions in order to stiffen the trunk without overbracing and destabilizing the system. It's also important to advance as pain lessens um, and regressive pain worsens. So, you know, this plan really should be individualized and they note that in there. And, and you know, they don't give a ton of ideas, but it's, it's just really nice how they lay that out. I think it's a helpful reminder. Um, and one thing I'll say too, just kind of another clinical thing is really make sure you're checking your patients who lift weights, or I see this a lot um, in my patients who are big into Pilates. They do a lot of over bracing. Everything is like full. They've got ta, all their, you know, both obliques and they've got their rectus just like bracing as hard as they can with every little thing. And that over bracing really destabilizes that system too. And then they end up with this chronic back pain. It's like, well, my core is really strong. Why does my back hurt? But they can't, they can't grade that contraction. They're not able to decrease that. And they've got so much gripping in their rectus that a lot of times the TA is not even really kicking in. So I don't know if you see, have seen much of that, but I've just noticed a lot with my more active and athletic folks, the overbracing is definitely a problem. I don't see
1: a lot of that population, but I mean, it definitely makes sense Mm -hmm. to me how that would happen. Um, And I think it depends sometimes on those kinds of exercise classes, how that muscle activation is cued. So again, back to that patient Mm -hmm. education, how you cue them to do certain things can make a big difference with SI issues.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you like one thing too, that I've noticed with my, my over bracers, um, a lot of times they're also the people who get a lot of hip clunking. Like when they're you know doing core exercises, they'll get, you know, popping or clunking in their hip and it's cause they're, there's not bracing properly. So that system's not stable at all. So they might be a really strong individual, but that doesn't mean that they're bracing properly through their core. So just, just another kind of clinical thing to make sure you're aware of. Um, So, in hypermobile patients, such as your pregnant patients, SI belts have been shown to be beneficial. And SI belts help by acting on the passive systems of the pelvis by increasing stability, but do not appear to have an effect on abdominal muscle activity. So, it doesn't make the abdominal muscles stronger, but it also is not inhibiting them or making them weak. By decreasing pain, a pelvic belt may help to enhance motor control. The goal is to wean out of the belt as the patient is able. Compliance with wearing the pelvic belt is a must in order for healing of SI joint ligaments. Options for those with chronic pelvic pain that is resistant to conservative care include articular injections, SI-directed radio- radiofrequency neurotomy, prolotherapy, and surgical options, which, again, I'm not going to jump into those too much, but they are discussed in the current concepts if you want more information on those. Um, so overall, I think the you know summary of this episode is we really can help these patients. I know there's a lot of, um, you know, okay, you need to cluster these tests and the research on each individual test isn't great, um, but there is a lot we can do to help these patients. And a thorough screening using a cluster of tests is the key to diagnosis, diagnosing and treating these patients with SI joint dysfunction. So, um, I don't know, Amanda, do you have anything else that you want to add on this?
1: Topic? No, I don't think so. You know, I think it can sometimes be a really daunting
0: or involved topic. I
1: think really breaking down the anatomy at first will help. And then just really understanding what clusters you're looking for and what those clusters mean.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think there's a level of accepting that there's still a lot that we don't know. And then just providing that education to your patients, you know, I, I think there's, and we all know this, there's a ton of fear around the low back and the pelvis um, and the hips. And I think that it's just kind of, unfortunately over time people have built a lot of fear around those areas and once you have back pain you always have back pain and so you know our role here is really educate these people on what these things mean and what they can do to help themselves and figure out what their goals are and and shift the focus to what those goals are agreed all right well thank you very much we're gonna hop in um move on to some hip stuff next um but otherwise, any questions, obviously, you guys can send us an email anytime, uh, and we'll talk with you next Thanks. Week.